Welcome to Polycast, a civilization podcast focused on game strategy. Dan Q. Makalua. The Man Team. Mega Bears Fan. With guest co-host, Mr. Shadows. I'd love to type a response in the chat, but for some reason, the O and F keys on my keyboard have decided to not work anymore. So most of my typing has become indecipherable. Whoopsies. Those are two very unfortunate keys to stop working, especially on the internet. Oh, it's awful. Yeah. <laughs> very required. Well, you do have a workaround. You just copy and paste an F that you see somewhere else. It'd be fine if it was just one letter, but the fact that it's two letters was just like, no, this is, uh-uh. Welcome to Polycast, episode 317. I'm Makalu, as usual. With me, as always, Dan Q. Oh, gosh, we have listeners. <laughs> the me and team. Always showing the best expansions. Mega Bears fan. Now typing without an F or O key. <laughs> and our guest today, who I forgot to check it, what you're supposed to be called, but hi. It's Mr. Shadows. Oh, shit. Ah. Right. <laughs> That's a very super villainy name you've got there. Uh. That was sort of the idea. It sort of evolved from an older name. It was Liquid Shadows, and I got too old, and that was too many syllables. So I guess it's still the same number of syllables. <laughs> well, no, no, no. You see, your first name is Liquid, and your last name is Shadows. So you're just Mr. Liquid Shadows, and you abbreviated it to Mr. Shadows. That's that's right. I am curious why it's Shadows plural and not just one. Do you cast more than one shadow simultaneously? I'm impressed. <laughs> How um, could you not, Dan? Haven't you not had multiple sources of light? Come on. Wait, I thought we all lived in a binary star system, so everything casts double shadows. <laughs> it goes back to the 90s. It's an old raver name, so it's under lights on a dance floor, so they're coming from all directions. Uh, Evidence of a misspent youth. All right, well, there's only one more important and pressing question to ask you. Which of your shadows is your favorite? Ooh, tricky uh, question. Probably that would be the one that starts with a PH. Well, I can agree with that. Good, because that's the only one I can type. (laughs) (laughs) Not really sure that's a problem, Jason. This is an audio-based podcast, but... Oh, you mean the rest of you aren't doing (laughs) text-to-speech? Oops, our bad. I'd be very impressed. Archon Wing starts the thread. Irrigation is pretty bad, I think. And points out that while military tactics is famously laughed at, this uh, is also a bad technology. And yeah, this thread's uh, about a month old now. But until I saw this, I actually didn't realize either. Like, it never really occurred to me that irrigation is a leaf tech. So that's interesting. But also the the small delay and not so great yields, it's, yeah, it's not great. (laughs) <laughs> Especially if you don't have a farmable, you know, resource like wheat or rice or something right next to your capital to get the uh, Eureka boost. Yeah. You can ignore it if you don't have a resource for it, but you're still eventually going to want the watermill for the uh, boost. I think his point is more if you get a start that requires irrigation, you're kind of gimped if you really need to work those tiles for grass compared to other people who have things that are more immediately workable. I've seen strategies where a lot of people suggest that you just build all your cities on top of the... Uh, <laughs> irrigation resources don't even bother researching the tech if you put it on top of a bonus resource i think it kills the bonus resource but if you put it on top of a luxury you keep the luxury and i think you keep the underlying yield 
you don't get that yield completely added on top of the base yield of the city. So right, it just kind of replaces it. Yeah. So if you'd place that city anywhere else in the north of that tile, but since these are weak tiles, you're not losing out too much. The big problem is usually that often uh, those luxuries are not located in the ideal city spot, so to speak, or even a passable city spot in some cases. So Right, which is why I've never actually practiced that strategy, even though I've had it recommended to me. And I'm like, oh, that sounds like a good idea. I should try that. And then I start a game and I'm like, no, it would take three turns to get my starting settler over to that plantation resource. I'm not going to waste that time. I'm just going to settle here and go with it. I mean, sometimes turns, it makes sense. It just depends where it is. If you found on one that's got plus one culture, that's like starting with a monument. So, I mean, I wouldn't go three turns, but one or two, I'd really consider it, especially if there's good tiles around it. You know, same for science or conceivably faith, even. Yeah, true. As long as you're still, like, adjacent to a river and all that stuff. But if you've got to move away from a river to get there, it's probably not worth it. And yeah, and of course, we're talking about the irrigation technology in Civilization VI. The big thing for that, of course, is the plantation for... Your bananas, your citrus, your cocoa, your coffee, your cotton, your dyes, your incense, your silk, your spices, your sugar, your tea, your tobacco, or your wine. Whew. Wow. I know. Isn't that impressive? I've been practicing that for, you know, a little while. I mean, if you really need those amenities early on, then sometimes you do. You're trying to expand. If you want that, you need that, that's fine. But it's kind of one of those technologies that I will eventually get because I will probably end up with some kind of <laughs> plantationable resource. But even if it is my only luxury it's not going to be okay i'm going to go to pottery first and then i'm going to go to irrigation i got some time for my city to expand before i'm going to need that i'm going to be prioritizing something else entirely it's like i understand perhaps why it is just a leaf tech that there's nothing else that goes with it okay, i'm gonna raise my eyebrow a little bit but if there was something else that went along with it like i don't know i understand why for example the watermill is at wheel I mean, you could make the argument that perhaps it could also go to irrigation or just have it so that irrigation is on the way to something else so it's not dead end. I don't think it's a major deal because it's in the ancient era, and eventually when you need it, it's probably going to be very cheap to research depending upon your game speed, but you're probably going to be able to get it within a few turns. I do want to point out, though, that plantations do also provide housing, so... They also provide half a house, yes. Yeah, it's not just the yield that you're getting from them. Although many improvements do but this. I'm willing to lose that half a house for the other yields that's going to get me on a city. I don't think I've had a problem running out of places to build housing. Except for like super huge city, maybe. No, you yeah, you need half a house? Well, put down a farm. <laughs> well, true. But I think I'm reading on here from several people that just the yields aren't that great. So I'm just pointing out, well, they also provide housing, which might be part of the reason why they don't provide more yield. That might be overtuned, though. Because like, if that's the reason mines are so much better, I don't know. Well, I mean, also production is really valuable early in the game, so therefore mines are really valuable. Yeah, but they scale up more, too. Like, you get yeah. a lot more earlier, I think. Yeah. I mean, it's true you'll get an additional food at scientific theory and an additional plus two gold at globalization. <laughs> Who gets there? But mm. <laughs> if those things were available a little earlier, I understand maybe they're not available right away. But if they're there a little earlier, then you might be more inclined. So I don't think irrigation is really bad. I just think it's really situational. Yeah, because there are also those situations where if you've got them, the plantation resources clustered around you, there are some pretty good pantheons, usually, that uh, you can get some good yield out of all that extra culture or uh, yes, yes, goddess of hunt. And I do tend to see when those plantation resources show up, they do tend to be clustered. 
That's true. You can probably have, after your capital, another city or two that would have at least one of those resources that you can start using in the first 20, 30 turns. And of course, if you're near an AI, for example, artificial intelligence controlled Civ, you may want to at least temporarily give them an extra one of those to get some money. If you get an irrigation resource that spawns on jungle hills, that's actually going to be a really good tile because it has a decent amount of hammers and tools and food early on. So, I mean, if you improve that, you're improving something you work anyway. If it's like spices on desert, can you really make that worthwhile? Maybe with Petra. Yeah, bananas on hills might very well be like the single best tile in the game. Oh, that's beautiful to see when you start. Even better if it's coffee because you get a culture with that. So you've got, what is that, three food, two hammers, and one culture? On turn one, that's very big. But even then, irrigation is only adding a little gold to it. It's true. There's also the ability to construct the hanging gardens, which will increase your growth by 15% in all cities. must be built next to a river. The other thing that the irrigation tech also allows you to do is to clear marsh. Except I usually don't clear the marshes because the marshes are like as good as a grassland with a farm. So it's like a pre-built farm. Initially, yeah, before you start getting into the adjacencies of the farm, that's true. Yeah, and you get the hammer from the Pantheon, but you can make a case for not bothering to clear that until right, really yeah, late. that too. That as well, yeah, with plus one production of marshes, yeah. So again, that's still something that's only good situationally. I guess it was a game decision choice because irrigation is such an important thing for population growth. I'd have expected it to lead to other things like construction. I'm not really sure why they chose to make it a leaf tech that way. It used to be in other sets. Yeah, I, I do kind of miss the mechanics in older sieves where you had to build the farms adjacent to fresh water and then irrigation allowed you to extend them out further like you were bringing the water with you. But I understand why they didn't do that in Civ 6 because there's just so much that's competing for those fresh water tiles. They were probably just like, uh, yeah, I think it was a game balance kind of thing. That does make sense. What is your standard, quote-unquote, barracks-to-stable ratio? This thread was started by Lone Dragon. Assuming your Civ doesn't have a unique building, he does go on to say in the thread, I almost never build them myself. I built one in a particular game because there's this one small area where an invading force can easily approach me from land and an encampment is a nice border defense. And also because the building, uh, it got me envoys in three city-states. And I was surprised by some people that were like, uh, my typical ratio is zero to zero. Said Zarin, I rarely build encampments unless I'm either being swarmed by barbarians or have a particularly aggressive neighbor. Hmm. I guess you might not be building encampments if you're on, say, island plates and there isn't a lot of land. And then, in which case, you might say, well, I don't need the great general points, which is a big reason why I would be constructing an encampment. And I realize this is more of of a barracks to a, a stable question. But if we're coming down to a barracks versus stable, then, of course, you can only construct one or the other in a given encampment, you have to make that choice. Well, a barracks is cheaper, and a barracks is available sooner, because a stable requires horseback riding. I'm also going to be fielding a lot more melee and ranged units, and the barracks will give me the 25% combat experience for all of them in the city, as compared to the the cavalry class units that a stable would give. So my ratio would be, I wouldn't say necessarily zero for a stable, but pretty darn close. Actually, probably most stables I end up with in the game came from an inherited encampment where an AI constructed a stable. I don't know. Knights are a pretty good investment path. But they're so good by themselves. The the question for me... Yeah, you're still... like If you're maining them, it makes sense to have at least a city or two cranking stuff that you're upgrading into them or building them. Yeah. 
the question for me is, would I rather have the barracks or the stable, or would I rather just build more units instead? Especially when you're pre-building them, you might be pre-building chariots, you might not necessarily be able to build the stable yet. And if you can, I don't know, I'm not sure how many hammers the stable is, but that's a number of chariots that'll be nice. I'd rather have two extra units than the, the experience group. That's a big thing that stops me from building the stables as well, is I usually have a bunch of chariots before I can even build the stables, at which point I'm just upgrading them and not building very many new cavalry units. Yeah, that's true. And a lot of times you really will be upgrading units, not building on them hard building. But you, and you will want to get one of these eventually if you go into the extended game, because you can then directly build cores and such. You progress down the path. But yeah, for early game, it's tough to work that in as opposed to just using more units. But the building the core comes from the military academies or whatever, not from the barracks or the stables, so... Yeah, but one of the two is a prereq, so you do wind up building one eventually. Yeah, you have to have one or the other, but that you don't have to build the stable in order to build cores of mounted units. Yeah, of course, that's true. By the time you want a military academy, you can buy the barracks or stable pretty easily. That's so late, it's not very expensive. Whether or not you need to make foreign army out of a military academy is another question. And yes, it's true that the barracks and the stable also give you plus one production and plus one housing and plus one citizen slot, but citizen slots really aren't being used in Civilization VI like they were in Civilization V. Plus one production and plus one housing, you can get production and housing elsewhere more readily and more quickly. So really it does come down to, I think, with the barracks and the stable. And actually, to me, most of the time, I don't even build a barrack for the additional combat experience because the combat experience comes from fielding earlier units and getting them promoted. But it becomes I'm trying to compete with someone for the next great general, and that's gonna and then sometimes that's quote unquote all I need is that one extra great general point. But seeing as how you can run that policy that gives you plus two great general points in your wildcard policy slot that's available relatively early in the civics tree, even for that, I mean it's good, but it's not like I need that to go to in order to start generating great general points, and probably already generating them by the time I might be interested in constructing a barracks, because as has also been said, why don't I just build a couple of more units and go out and have them get combat experience rather than constructing a barracks, which I then would need to construct a military unit then in order to take advantage of it. The one time that I think it really is helpful is if you're looking for a big push when you faith buying units, because uh, you're not going to be able to get that until you build the Grandmaster's Chapel which gives you time to put in a barracks or a stable, whatever you know you're going to faith by, then they come out. It's not about the upgrade, it's about the insta-heal. Hopefully, they'll be able to insta-heal without having to rest, keep it going. But because you have time until you can faith by them, you may as well be doing something with the hammers that you're hammering out. I would also say that, in my opinion, I would build a lot more encampments and therefore a lot more barracks and stables if the encampment district had some kind of tile adjacency bonus. The fact that it doesn't have any adjacency bonuses means that when I'm looking at the terrain around my city and thinking about how I'm going to develop it, the encampments don't even really factor into the equation for me because where you put them really doesn't matter. So I'd really like to see them have uh, probably an adjacency bonus with uh, strategic resources, I think, would be a good thing for them to have, whether it be production or gold or bonus experience for units or whatever. Hmm. I'm not sure, because the encampments are already pretty good. In the single-player game, their functionality as another walls, as another city attack, range strike, is reduced a lot. The AI just isn't tactically that dangerous, so you don't have to put that in a certain place to control the area if you don't want to. That's true. I'm more just thinking, like, a couple encampments is really good, no matter what. So I don't know if we need to make them stronger. 
Just the fact that the great generals are so critical, an earlier medieval great general, that can be pretty much game over if you use it properly. So yeah. just for that alone, yeah, encampments are very strong. Well, also, you don't always have access to, to two AB strategic resource. Sometimes you can trade for it, but then your marginal value is also whatever the cost of trading for that resource is on top of everything else it's giving you. So they're pretty good to have just for making units as well as making your units stronger by a great generals. And even if you're going great general stuff when it comes to a barracks versus a stable, I should have also pointed out that the encampment itself will give you plus one great general point per turn, which if you combine that with the civic policy you talked about before, that in and of itself is plus three great general points a turn. And getting that plus one from constructing a barracks or a stable is probably more often than not not going to be necessary unless you're competing or you really want to have that next great general that much more quickly. But it's, again, the difference between plus three and plus four, consistently, I don't think it's going to be that much. You're probably better off. I've got the encampment for the additional bombard. You've placed that somewhere, hopefully strategically, either because you've got a city that's on the front line and you want to use that as an additional bombardment into enemy territory and or to minimize the invasion from units from other civilizations. So that really doesn't help the barracks versus stable ratio. It's just kind of, I put the encampment down and I'm typically done. I don't generally build a barracks or a stable, but if I do, it's going to be a barracks. <sighs> it's really not that interesting a decision more often than not. I wish it were. I think the encampment itself is extremely strong, but the buildings inside of it, very questionable. It's situational, either way is the word. Yeah. Yeah, and usually you don't build them early. There's something you pick up later. Which may very well be like Mr. Shadows was saying, and just go ahead and buy them a little later. Yeah. <laughs> a little later if I really feel the need at that point. It often comes to that. Yeah. Because you'll like transition your army type or something. Now it makes more sense to invest in the buildings than previously. But yeah, most of the time, early game, you just have better things you can put your hammers into. And then as time goes on, okay, maybe barracks are a bit more than stables. And at that point, you might want a barracks because as you're saying, it's like, okay, so later on in the game, I'm going down a different line in terms of units. I can't upgrade my existing units into this. I'm going to have to start over in terms of constructing units. It would be nice to get that added combat experience because these units haven't had the time to be in the field to get that combat experience from, well, actual combat. Yeah, if you've got a, a unique unit that doesn't upgrade from an earlier unit, then I think barracks and stables look a lot nicer. In the thread, Atwork says, generally depends on the city's location. I usually build barracks in frontline cities, stables in cities farther from a contested front. In my current game, the ratio is six barracks, two stables across 13 cities. Um, I'm not sure what that's for necessarily. Yeah, I'm not seeing the direct correlation between frontline versus a contested front as a basis for building either barracks or stables. I see that as a basis for building an encampment. <laughs> yeah. And if you're building that many encampments, it's probably because you're playing a militarily aggressive game, which means those frontline cities are not going to stay frontline cities for very long because that too. <laughs> unless you're playing really poorly, you're capturing the nearby cities and the front line is constantly being pushed away from your encampments. So they don't stay on the front line where their bombardment is very useful for very long, unless you're playing a defensive game. And in which case, if you're doing that, you're probably far enough along in the game that, you know what, I'm just going to go ahead and I'm just going to buy that barracks. Yeah. Because it would be cheaper to do so than to spend the turns to construct it, when I could spend those turns constructing something else, which would be that much more of a multiplier cost to buy gold anyway. 
Tying back to what we were saying earlier when we were briefly talking about housing in relation to the encampment, saying past castings, I think the fact that you get a culture and a housing is something that is left out from the encampment discussion that I think deserves to be there. The cultures are pretty nice to push for political philosophy, which of course political philosophy on the civic tree, that'll give you your first tier one uh, government type choices, the three of them. Not the main reason you use them, but it definitely helps. And that's true as part of the encampment discussion. But when we're talking about a stable versus barracks, I feel like there's even less to talk about and less to really consider. It's not as interesting a conversation. They do add hammers to internal trade routes. That's not a compelling reason to build more of them. The hammers aren't going to pay for themselves. Yeah, and usually you're just sending your internal trade routes between like a few cities anyway, so you don't need it in every city. Yeah, that's if you want to concentrate hammers in one city to make it strong, but then you only need one for that. Right. And you may also say that I could be constructing these internal trade routes, but really I only want this internal trade route now, say, between my second and third city in order to construct the road. And then when the trade route comes up for renewal, I'm not going to maintain that. So, okay, over those 30 turns, you've got 30 hammers out of it. And you spent uh, how many hammers again constructing the barracks or stable? move on to a post by Black Butterfly titled, What Are Your Biggest Criticisms of the Civ 6 Maps? Well, I know what mine are, but let's see what the forum has to say. The original poster put, like, one thing on here, which is that he doesn't like one-tile lakes. Uh, I don't have a problem with the one-tile lakes. Size of the maps is my biggest problem with maps, especially after Civ 5 introduced the hex-based one unit per tile thing. I think the maps just need to be a lot bigger and things need to be a lot more spread out. As far as I'm concerned, my biggest criticism of the game's maps, although certainly the size of them is right behind it, is the variety. I realize we're only one expansion into Civilization 6, but let's look at the downloadable content that was available for Civilization 5 before the first expansion pack, and how many different map types there were, and that are not in Civ 6. And we did not see that in Vanilla, we did not see anything added in Rise and Fall, and we did not see anything added in the downloadable content. Because, yeah, there's the true start locations, and there's the other real-world locations, but if you're talking about the other map types... There isn't the variety. I mean, I know Mackie in particular is probably happy that there isn't Great Plains and Great Plains Plus, but <laughs> it was nice to have that variety in there. <laughs> I think I'd also like to see two different variants of mountains, maybe for regular mountain tiles to actually be passable, but then for there to be like maybe like peak tile that shows up in the middle of mountain ranges and that one's impassable. I like that we're getting a lot of interesting mountain ranges and they create some interesting choke points and stuff, but I don't like how frequently entire areas of the map get completely closed off by mountain ranges because they are completely impassable. Like, yeah. Or even just having a thing like in Civ Five where Carthage had the ability to cross units and then they would take 50 hit points damage whenever they ended their turn on a mountain. Like, Even if you could do something like that, I really wish that some of these mountain ranges either were passable or could at some point be made passable. <laughs> Not every mountain on the planet is the Himalayas. You're right, yeah. And can we add to that the North and South Pole issues? Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry, I can't get around with that ship because there's one hex of ice right here. Anybody want to construct a city down here so we can make a quote-unquote canal? No? What, it's just faster to reroute your frickin' naval units around the planet? Yes, actually, it probably is at that point. The only place in real life we have close to that is the pass going under South America. It's like... Not every continent should have that. Stop doing that when you generate the continents. 
we had like yeah. a mini ice age in dark ages europe and you know yeah. so that was that was actually one of the catalysts for the um scandinavian vikings actually looking for places like greenland and north america because the fertility of their country wasn't very good anymore because it was getting so cold stuff like that's played a pivotal role in human history and I, I really wish that the game would model stuff like that more and the ice caps are an excellent example of how that would be useful to gameplay <laughs> quick everybody build more factories so we can have a pass on the north and the south pole <laughs> <laughs> Seriously. Well, you need to be like uh, Beyond Earth and just build the floating city that just travels around the ocean, polluting all of the ice caps and melting them. <laughs> yeah, I'll have that up in about 1080. No problem. Yeah, exactly. Uh, <laughs> or we could just actually have canals or something. Anyway. Yeah, yeah you know. that would just... uh, Can't have nice things. Alice Wise in the thread from Sherlock in all caps. Not enough production. <laughs> Given how cluttered the maps can get, I would not feel good about increasing production until we alter the size of maps relative to cities and units. Also, I can't help but feel like that that response is also in response to how extraordinarily strong gold is in Civilization VI, as we've talked about before. I could be wrong about that, but that was kind of my reading between the lines on that, too. Yeah, I feel like the production is very hit or miss. You either get cities that have virtually no production, or you have cities that have all of the production. And then I guess in which case, you want some internal trade routes for some food then. Let's see, what else is in here? Uh, I see some complaints in here about there not being enough lakes. So, you know, there's that as well. I also see some people who are asking for more islands and island chains. That would be really nice to have. We probably would need some more civilizations that benefit from that. Things like Polynesia and uh, Indonesia and Civ Five, because right now there's really not much benefit at all for any of the civs to settling on islands, except maybe for England, if it's considered on a different continent. In Civ Five, I remember there were two types I liked: Pangaea Plus and Continents Plus. Yes, was- those were great map types. Yeah, city states on islands. You had more larger islands. It was there. It gave you more variety in the map. I also I always enjoyed the Great Lakes map. The Arboreal, those are kind of like one-offs for me, but it's good to see them. It's, it's good to see those quirky map types in there. We don't have a lot of them right now. Another thing that would be nice, even with the current map types, like continents, for example. Okay, I'm playing on a standard size map, for example. I want four. I want the option to go in and say I want four. If I wanted to specify the number, it'd be nice to be able to specify the number. And then the game can decide randomly also based on size and other variables just how large those continents are but there are four continents and by continent civ 6 i mean distinct land masses (laughs) that are not connected that do not have this one hex impassable tile to then say they're quote-unquote continents completely separate land masses with a decent amount of water in between but still to be able to go in and specify that exact number or if i want an islands map to be able to tell you how many islands, or to say I want a minimum number of continents and a minimum number of islands to go along with some continents as well, or I want this one big, you know, one big continent and small islands or large islands, everything relative in scale to the map size, which we could get in part in a couple of previous SIF titles. I mean, we could just say just let the modders do it, but that's you know. <laughs> we would like to have these features available for everybody with the base game who doesn't necessarily want a mod as well. Then we can have the modders look at more niche things. To me, this seems like something that's pretty 
basic yeah. that should already be there. I mean, certainly I would expect, and I'm no programmer by any stretch of the imagination, but I'm certain the map script already has some variables that could then be presented to the player to be able to modify within the game setup itself. Not having to go into XML files, for example, but just being able to tell it, just have it be a little more customizable up front to the player would be fantastic. You wouldn't have to input it. It could do it by default, but just a little checkbox to say, nope, I'm going to tell you how many islands or continents. That's an excellent point because we can tweak the world age. You know, you can tweak the number of resources on the map, how much water there is. If they expanded that a little bit to include features like you're talking about, you know, more islands, more continents, how big are they? It could be a very user-friendly way to make the map type that you wanted. I'd also like to see the uh, Civ Five world builder come back for Civ Six because I don't think Civ Six has a GUI world builder where you can just make your own maps. No, it's true. That would also be very helpful for the map complaints because you could just go make your own. That would also be cool. Probably a community would grow up around that because people would make maps and want to swap them. Here, play this one. Try that one. I would definitely like it for the purpose of writing strategy guides so I can actually just make little maps with little scenarios so I can test certain interactions. As much as this thread, and rightly so, is about criticism of maps in Civilization VI, I will say there is one thing. That is available to the player with Civilization VI maps that we did not have previously, certainly through the main game interface, and that is the seed for the map. That is nice, yeah. Yeah, I think a lot of it really comes back down to the clutter of the map because of how little distance there is between cities and how big units are relative to the terrain they move on. It would be really interesting if, from a performance perspective, uh, Civ could handle the larger maps. Because, like, man, it's a dumpster fire in the newer Civ games to play on larger maps right now. Even on recommended or well above recommended settings, it's a complete dumpster fire. You spend so long waiting. Fix that performance issue. It could be amazing. I do also see a lot of complaints on this thread about just starting city and city-state placement. I think they improved that a lot in the expansion I don't see city civs starting as close to each other as we used to in vanilla, but there are still clusters of city-states. But hey, at least you can raise the city-states now. Recorded for episode 310 of the Tank Q, Makalua, the Mian team, Mega Bears fan, and New Earth Relic. Daldron is proposing bringing back corporations, vassal states, and is also pitching a, I guess, new mechanic for trade nodes. Vassal states was one of my favorite features in Civ 4. I would definitely be pro bringing that back. No double Uh, vassals, though, please. Yeah, meh on corporations. But if you can add more compelling mechanics to late game, that definitely improves the late game. I just don't know that corporations really did that in Civ 4. They were very hit or miss in my book. But anyway, it looks like the uh, idea behind the trade nodes is to have a handful of cities where almost all of the trade goes through. And I kind of feel like that was maybe one of the ideas behind the, uh, what does Civ 6 call it, the trade post? But it doesn't really do that. Well, and he talks about how the two paths could work for determining where to place the trade nodes. Either the trade nodes are pre-placed on the map before the game starts, or the trade nodes are generated based on some mechanic relating to where trade routes are clustered. And immediately I'm thinking of something like the Silk Road, historically. So having it pre-placed on the map seems odd. On on the basis of what? Just have it be based on, again, some mechanics, like where trade routes happen to be clustered. 
where you're sending trade routes to whoever you happen to be. Let's say you're Congo. Why not? You're Congo. You're trading with Rome. You send your trade routes to Rome. And then, I don't know, Nubia beside you also starts sending their trade routes to Rome. At some point, those are going to cross paths. And then that, if that's one hex or multiple hexes where it all comes together, that could be a trade node. That would make more sense to me than some seemingly arbitrary predetermination before the game even starts. I mean, they sort of have that with Great Zimbabwe because of the uh, placement restrictions on it, but I think that's more uh, Great Zimbabwe overall. I sort of do that because that's one of my top-tier wonders to build. Like, hey, this is actually sort of makes sense for what I like to do. But uh, it would be kind of nice to have things like, you know, you've got that one city on the coast that has the harbor in it, and almost all of your trade routes are going in and out of that harbor. Like that, I could see an argument for that maybe having some kind of benefit for the city or cities getting bonuses for having multiple trade routes going through them. But I don't know, then you're talking about like, again, potential snowballing concerns. So I think you'll always have potential snowballing issues regardless of the mechanic that you introduced. But it is important to note that at some point in trying to add something that it could become something that is so good that it's always going to be used. Or from the other perspective, you'd be crazy not to use that. So a limitation is important. And I like the idea of a trade node, but I think it could also be tied a little bit more into trading posts that we already have, whether it's more explicitly stated or renamed. But it does kind of make sense in a way that the trade node would have impacts on things other than just commerce, right? Because people get together and they trade, but they're not just going to be talking about what they're trying to barter back and forth. They're going to be talking about their views on politics, their views on religion, why their significant other ticked them off, I don't know, why their kids pissed them off. Right. I could see this maybe being actually a decent idea for another diffusion mechanic in the game, where maybe if you're sending trade routes through a city that has a lot of other trade routes going to it, you get even more of those passive benefits, like the extra culture and science and, you know, faith and stuff like that. So if a bunch of different civilizations are sending a bunch of trade routes all through one city, that city is going to be even better than just whatever the city's owner put in that city. You're going to be exposed to all the other civilizations as well. So maybe you leech benefits from them in addition to leeching benefits from the actual civ that controls the city. Marginal science and uh, culture boosts then? I mean, at the simplest level, yeah. But I mean, you could also be talking about things like gaining diplomatic favor with them as well. Like there's a diplomatic modifier, I think, for having trade routes with a civ. Maybe you get a even smaller one for trading into a city that another civ is trading into. Because it's like we've kind of got a mutual economic arrangement going here. Yeah, I feel like uh, once you get to two levels of uh, this depth, then it's going to end up as a mechanic that no one's going to actually try to use. And it's just going to be an incidental thing, sort of like the uh, Vanilla Civ 6 Legacies. And it's going to be one of those mechanics that devs are going to be super excited to implement and it will never get used. And then, then what? Packs of Secrecy. What? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Not so secret, secret packs. <laughs> uh, it's not a secret. No one used this thing. Uh, are there suggestions of how it could tie into also for tourism and religion as well? Because another topic could be like, so where do you think we go after we die? Oh, well, this is where I think we go. Well, why do you believe that? Well, my religion says such and such. And you end up with that conversation. And then that gets replicated. The traders go back to their empire. They start talking about it. <laughs> so it could also be an opportunity where you might not be the most 
powerful military on the planet, but if you're controlling the trade route, you're controlling where that spice flows, you could make those militaristic powers uh, your puppets in more ways than one. Not necessarily a formal vassal, though. You know, now your trade hub city is probably on fire because you have people arguing about religions and afterlives. Oh, dear. Vassals could end the game faster, so I vote yes to capitulation and no to Diplo That's vassal. true, and that was handy sometimes in multiplayer. If I was getting beat up on somebody else, I could vassal to one of the other human players. And they would go, whoa, wait a minute. But that's Diplo vassal. I don't want to see that back, because that had some game-breaking uh, occurrences and so far. I guess you could just declare and accept it. Yeah. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> vassal state can be both peacefully and forcefully created. The peaceful option can be done simply by making a trade deal. Yeah, no. We don't need this back. We do not need this back. The forceful option is part of a peace deal resulting from the colonial war, Cassius Belli. The vassal state ends when the junior sieve catches up in technology. This I also don't agree with. It's way too easy to catch up in tech like that. Way too easy. So it makes the vassal deal unstable and kind of pointless. I think you would have to either break free via war or having to get to a team in large enough size rather than this. Well, one of the things that the poster does say under the vassal state concepts is the idea of using vassal states as a way to help a behind Civ catch up. So if the vassal states were implemented in such a way where you could opt to become the vassal of a larger, more powerful civilization in order to help you catch up to that civilization. Why should they take you under any circumstances? Well, Unless it, we're implementing joint victories or something. There's I mean, that absolutely would no reason to do this at all. I mean, you have to now, have a system I could see where creating both... a sieve, right, where you make a vassal out of a conquered territory and it has more efficient usage of the pop than you. That would have worked in Civ Five, but it wouldn't really work here. Right. I, I agree with you that without a, some form of joint victory or, or shared victory, that any sort of long-term alliance or friendship or relationship is pretty much moot, and there would be no reason for the larger sieve to ever do that. It could be structured kind of similarly to how trade routes work, where one person gets a large benefit and the other person gets a small benefit. In this case, the larger sieve would get a small benefit from having the vassal state, whereas the vassal state would get a much larger benefit. But I do agree with you in principle that unless those two sieves can win the game together, that for the larger sieve, it's probably better just to hold everybody else down so they don't catch up because that's just going to make the slog to the end of the game even harder. As Daldrin suggests in the thread, the Big Brother Civ would receive all the trade power from the Junior Civ. Trade power, my brain interpreted that as whatever trade routes they're generating, that income goes to the Big Brother, but that's still a bit of a question mark. It sounds like we're playing EU4 here. This I was power. about to say. I know all about trade power, and... yeah, but <laughs> not in this game. Well, he does say when he was introducing trade notes in italics, this is similar to Europa Universalis Force trade note concept. So he's probably got that on the brain as he's describing the corporations and the vassal states as well. My gosh. (laughs) (laughs) These are such different games in terms of how their engines run. I cannot picture a viable implementation of even the unidirectional procedurally generated trade routes from like you would see from random New World in EU4. And it's not a particularly rigorous model anyway. You could do better in EU4 using a number of different methods. So I don't see a particular need to bring it over. The Big Brother Civ Corporation has increased spread pressure in the vassal cities and is also suggested by Daldrin that during war, the units of the vassal state temporarily fall under the control of the Big Brother Civ until the end of the war. And again, we can see instances where, depending upon how this is set up, Either, oh, I would very much like to be a vassal state because I will be protected in some way, whereas that puts 
burden on the big brothers. Like, why would I want you as a vassal? Or I absolutely want you to have a vassal because it's going to help me win the game more quickly. And then it's like, well, if I become the vassal state, am I going to die? Or am I just helping this other civilization win more quickly? Why would I go ahead and do that? Why not just try to, you know, I'm doing fine on my own kind of a thing. It is trying to find that balance of the vassal state needs to have it so that to be a vassal and to have a vassal, there's something that's mutually beneficial in that moment for some longer-term gain. And my gosh, finding that middle ground is not easy. I do notice that um, one of the big problems with this particular pitch is if the idea here is to make becoming a vassal state some sort of catch-up mechanic, the fact that you lose all of your trade routes and lose control of your units kind of hurts that because at that point, what are you doing other than just hitting end turn until the parent sieve unvassalizes you? I mean, it sounds like he's trying to take all of the decisions away from the Vassal Civ, in which case no player is ever going to want to become a Vassal. And if they do, that's basically a game over. Yeah, kind of they situation. should just make it a capitulation system in my mind. I think Civ 4 yeah. had the right idea with the caps. Right. It, was just, it was mostly a time saver more than anything else. Yeah, Civ needs a catch-up mechanic, but this is not the mechanic that they need. Well, it does let a Civ that's defeated stay in the game, and it gives them a small chance of breaking out at some point. Yeah, the problem is that if... No user's going to want to play through that, though. Yeah, it's rare that anyone would, and you, you would typically consider it a game over. I think that's fine, though, because you got all your shitties conquered. That's also a game over, so... <laughs> now, maybe if you tied this into something like, say, the Ages, like maybe only Civs that are in Dark Ages can become Basils, and then if they go into a Golden Age, they automatically break out or you know, something like that, where it's tied more into other mechanics. I really dislike any implementation that allows a free break based on such relatively easy criteria, because that just means you wouldn't use it as an overlord, and it wouldn't make sense to use it. Yeah. That's true for tax, that's true for Dark Age, then into Golden Age, anything like this, or like a certain population. Population overlord could work, that's one of the criteria Sephora used, but just like a raw population increase is way too easy to engineer and then lose the subject. Well, or, take or the subject, just kill it. And again, taking that criticism into a consideration, you know, maybe you don't automatically break free by triggering a golden age. Maybe just triggering a golden age is a requirement for being able to break free. And then maybe the parent sieve gets some benefits from your golden age if you don't break free. So there's a reason for them to want to do it. Things like that. But yeah, I agree that it's tricky to figure out a way to make it work where it's compelling for both sides of the arrangement. They got two things working against you, and you've kind of already touched upon it, is that in addition to making it agreeable for the person to become the vassal and the person to have the vassal to enter to the agreement, there's also what's the exit strategy, or is there an exit strategy? And I feel like the more that we're talking about this, it comes back to the joint victory, that the idea of becoming a vassal is, I'm not saying that you can't have a, a break-free option, but the quote-unquote simplest thing would be, you are going to be my vassal from now until the end of the game. This is because I'm in this position. You're in this position. You're weaker than I am in some measure. We've decided that in order to win, 
I'm going to need this additional help so it happens more quickly. So from the Big Brother perspective, I could win, but it's going to be another 20-25 turns. Something could happen during those 20-25 turns. I know. I'll take this third sieve right here, and I don't know. They've got one spaceport operational. I've got two. It makes it easier so that within that 25 turns, we're going to be able to win together. And from the person becoming the vassal, you're winning, but you're also deciding who you're going to win with. It's a bit of a kingmaker, but it's kind of a shared kingmaker. There's no way I'm going to be able to win on my own because I'm going to get squashed. But if we pair up together, then we can win together. If you want to implement something where the uh, junior partner ha- can break free, I would make it military. Well, or if, if the- they reach a certain percentage of the overlord's power militarily, they get the option to declare independence, and then they have to win that. Yeah, and that would have to either happen by the basil civilization becoming more powerful or by the parent civilization just being like destroyed or collapsing or whatever either one would suffice going back to what dan was saying one of the problems with that and and again i like the idea of a shared victory and i I like the idea of vassal states in general and i would like to see them work together i think there's a lot of room there for for axis to work with the problem is that you want to make sure that the vassal mechanic is compelling for the vassalized player throughout the entire game. You don't want it to be a mechanic where in the last 20 turns or so, everybody's just vassalizing to end the game. Because what if I decide to become somebody's vassal in like the medieval era? Well, again, am I just hitting end turn for the next 200 or 300 turns until that AI wins the game for me? So you got to find a way to make that also interesting for the player long term. I've been working on a Poland strategy, and the idea is that because the Winchesars are on the culture tree, you can pretty much ignore science as long as you can push culture and faith, which you can use choral music for. The problem is, is that because you're going for the religion and Poland doesn't have a whole lot of early uh, bonuses, is that lots of times you're only working with five or six cities. It can be depressing because you feel like you're losing. Anyway, the thing is, though, is that if you can get the Grandmaster's Chapel out by around 120, the Hussars hit hard. It's fun. It's an alternative to the standard night rush, the standard take out my neighbor with swords or horses. And it's also it's getting me to explore the religion mechanics a bit more. Right, and for those listening wondering, I'm sorry, what's this now? The Grandmaster's Chapel. You construct it in the government plaza, and it will allow you to buy land units with faith. Pillaging improvements in districts provides bonus faith. It gives you a governor title. And all you need in terms of infrastructure is either your ancestral hall, your audience chamber, or your warlord's throne, which is your very first government building choice. Yeah, that's right. Because you can buy units once you get that chapel up, Your holy sites are producing hammers in the form of faith because you're going to turn them into your army, but they're also producing culture. That one district is serving two purposes, so it saves you a lot of hammers. That's why it works even if you don't have a lot of cities. The only other thing you need is you need a tier two government as well, either merchant republic, monarchy, or theocracy. Absolutely. And theocracy is preferred because it gives you a discount when you buy your units. But there's no reason you couldn't do it in monarchy or merchant republic. It's not really a Civ gameplay experience. It's actually more of a Civ forum experience. And it's an embarrassing story. I've been playing Civ 6 for two years, and I didn't know until recently how the combat mechanics actually worked. I had recently posted a strategy guide for the Mapuche, and I had a line where I talked about how, oh, you get this plus 10 combat bonus for civilizations in Golden Ages, and you should use this earlier because it's going to be 
stronger earlier because as you get later in the game, the units get stronger, so plus 10 combat, smaller percentage of their combat strength, without realizing that between Civ 5 and Civ 6, they change the way that the combat odds are calculated so that it only takes into account the difference in the unit strengths, not the unit's absolute strengths. Oh. So that plus 4 from Oligarchy or plus 10 from Mapuchi's ability or whatever else is just as useful at the end of the game as it is at the beginning of the game because even if you've got infantry with 70 strength, it's only looking at the plus 4 or the plus 10 to compare them. It's not looking at it as, oh, that's only 10% more strength. It's just looking at the Damn, difference. I didn't realize you didn't know that. Yeah, that makes I, a big yeah, difference. I, actually, I think I've, I've said things about that on Polycast as well, and, and nobody's either understood what I was saying or thought to correct me. So I've been playing the game this entire time without realizing that was how the combat mechanics work, because there were so many other new mechanics in Civ Six like appeal and completely changing how tourism works and all that stuff and I was so focused on that I wasn't even thinking about hey you know what the combat results seem really strange compared to Civ 5 I never thought to really look into why it was that way I just kind of kept playing and was like eh whatever one of those things if we didn't have the forum to explain that combat formula to us I don't think anybody would understand it it's really unfortunate like these are strategy games this is a rule it should not be this difficult i think we should acknowledge and applaud jason for being brave enough to tell us his story today and i think he deserves a group hug (laughs) (laughs) this is my civ anonymous story (laughs) (laughs) yes jason mega bears fan this is your civ anonymous story. that's right and i'm broadcasting out to the whole interweb so i do want to say thank you to the forum user i forget who it was who pointed that out to me i'm not mad at you i do not hate you Oh, you're not shooting the messenger. Oh, okay. I'm not going to shoot the messenger. Thank you for pointing that out to me. It's embarrassing, but I'm glad I know better now. So I corrected the strategy post as well. Well, the person didn't point it out for name recognition. He or she pointed it out as a selfless act of gamerism. Of course. Of course. (laughs) That was a pretty uh, egregious mistake on my part. Moral of the story is don't assume that mechanics in a new Civ game work the same way that they've worked in previous Civ games, even if it's not something that's advertised as being different. Then this person pointed this out to you without being a jackass about it, right? Uh, I did not take it as being mean. So, I, I mean, obviously it typed, you know, I don't know what the person's mindset was when they wrote it, but I did not take it personally, or as being mean or aggressive. They didn't use the letters F and O in certain combinations? They did not. (laughs) But maybe their keyboard doesn't have those letters either. I don't know. (laughs) Their post didn't start off, hey, jackass, you missed this, so... The, The entire post has never utilized the word of, therefore not aggressive. There are jobs at Firaxis Games, Civilization Developer. Uh, as of this writing, there are eight of them. And I got looking at these, and, and and sorry to our guest, I don't know you as well as my fellow regular co-hosts, and I thought, you know what? Setting aside any actual knowledge and background and experience in education, which ones, if we could, you know, in a vacuum as regular co-hosts, most likely to be interested in applying for? And I figured... Mackie, uh, one of them is a character model, and you model character all the time. Aww. <laughs> Could also be the technical animator, because you always have to be technically animated in order to put up with us. Jason, you could be a systems programmer and the gameplay programmer. I could look after the senior DevOps engineer and the online services engineer. And Phil, you could be the tools programmer and the UI programmer. Yeah, what a surprise I would get these. Yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> well, you don't like the way we did it, so you do it. Yeah, well, <laughs> more or less. That's true. Are these job postings specifically for Civ? No, no, they, just no. for access. It's just this for access for a new game that might be in development. The way it's presented on the careers portion of Fraxis's website, I got looking at the actual address. And so based on the numerical number, when it was posted in order, they first posted about the online services engineer. So I'm not going to read the responsibilities and all that stuff, but just the first sentence description to give you an idea of the people that they're looking for, because perhaps there's somebody out there listening to this show that says, hey, I could do that, or hey, I could write a better description. Or both. Braxis Games is looking for an online services engineer to help enrich our games with services such as matchmaking, player stats, leaderboards, analytics, entitlement platforms, anti-cheat and security, customer service tools, and more. And I'm pretty sure the analytics have absolutely nothing to do with Red Shell anymore. Uh, <laughs> I had to throw that in there. I really did. Let's hope not. <laughs> I do want to point out that, as I understand it, you can just put an API to Red Shell in your own code. You don't actually have to use their DLL. So they could still very well be using Red Shell without having the DLL in there. And we wouldn't be able to know unless you like monitor your network traffic and see network traffic going to wherever the heck Red Shell servers are. Oh, man. Could you imagine if they found something like that, though, after all this? <laughs> I think if you posted some open speculation, especially on the Civ Reddit as compared to Civilization Finex forum, I'll bet within an hour there'd be quite the conversation going on. You, you would have many replies to deal with. <laughs> <laughs> Air quotes replies. Uh, <laughs> oh, they'd be replies. <laughs> <laughs> Technical animator was posted next. The ideal candidate is organized and self-motivated. They value teamwork and collaboration and enjoy creating tools to make other people's jobs more successful. You'll be joining a team of technical animators that serve a variety of projects and helping develop new tech to raise production quality and increase efficiency. So when I hear serve a variety of projects, to me that kind of translates into, ah, multiple different games, perhaps multiple different franchises, Civ, XCOM, or perhaps otherwise. A UI programmer was posted next. Phil's probably thinking, why wasn't that posted first? I, I don't have an answer for you. Talented and inspired uh, user interface programmer to join our award-winning development team. And then the next one is just about their highly collaborative and iterative environment. Character model. You'll have a solid grasp of modeling and texture, both organic and hard surface assets. Blah, 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 blah. I'm condensing some of these now. Tools programmer. Oh, yes, again for Phil. Talented and inspired, that phrase once again. Of course. And actually, that, that's the same general description. The senior DevOps engineer, responsible for continued support of online services and underlying infrastructure. The role will interact with all existing and future projects here at Firaxis, unlike all of the other positions, which will apparently not do that because it doesn't say so. Ha. The systems programmer, engineer with a strong foundation in software engineering who enjoys working on a diverse set of challenging problems. Ooh. Gameplay programmer, parable description to some of the other ones. So there you go. Well, you know what? This diverse set of jobs that they're looking for, it almost does sound like enough people to work on a new game. It's a little bit of everything you would need. And speaking of which, Firaxis may be working on a new IP, according to an article from the gamesindustry.biz. They're talking about growing the studio and potentially working on a new game that is not either Civilization or XCOM. Although I don't think this article had any more details about what the game might be. I am pleased that they're branching out into new IPs because a lot of studios these days are moving towards an annual release cycle. 
whether it be making a sequel to the same game like Call of Duty and Assassin's Creed and all that, or alternating between two or three IPs every year or an IP with expansions. And I think Firaxis has been releasing a game every year for at least since like Civ 5 came out because it was like Civ 5, then XCOM, then expansion for Civ 5, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So if they're going into having a new IP, that means they don't have to make as many Civilization or XCOM games in order to maintain that uh, annual release schedule, which uh, means they might have more time to let uh, a potential Civilization 7 or XCOM 3 bake in the oven before having to feel pressured to put it out to market, which I think would only be a good thing. I agree completely there. Beyond Earth, one of its big flaws for me was that it felt too much like Civilization V when it came out. There wasn't enough in there. I mean, I feel like these franchises, they start getting, you know, five, six, seven, eight editions and more. Sometimes they start getting stale because Call of Duty has to be a Call of Duty game. Madden has to be a Madden game. Devil May Cry has to be Devil May Cry. And so, I mean, because they're trying to stay true to the series' roots, I think uh, maybe new ideas don't happen as a result. So, I mean, it's great to see them trying something new. Yeah, and hopefully it also gives them a little bit more freedom to be more creative with future iterations of Civilization and XCOM, because they'll have more time to maybe experiment with and playtest alternative design paradigms and mechanics and feature sets, as opposed to, because Civ Six when it came out, got a lot of criticisms for basically being a do-over of Civ Five. So, you know, I would definitely like to see that Civ 7 not just be Civ 6.5 or Civ 5.75, however the heck you want to think about it. I'd really like to see another later Civ games try some really new things, you know, more in line with the jump from Stacks of Doom to one unit per tile between uh, Civ 4 and Civ 5. I'd like to see more seismic changes like that. And if it doesn't work, it doesn't work. We can always go back to playing Civ 4, Civ 5, or Civ 6. But if they make something really new that is also really good, again, that's only going to be good for everybody. The article itself, of course, 2K's light slate belies bigger ambitions. There's one specific mention about Firaxis games in it, with the quote, hoping to broaden the offerings coming out of Firaxis. President David Ismailer uh, from 2K said, quote, We did Civ, then we did XCOM, and now we're looking, hopefully, to add one more to that portfolio, unquote. We're looking, hopefully to add and maybe pigs will fly someday too uh other than on a plane so we'll see maybe that hopeful means that it is dependent on them getting some kind of license maybe they are looking to get something like alpha centauri or something like that and it's all dependent on whether or not they can get the rights to it i doubt they would make a public statement to that effect so early but we can hope yeah you know what i think we're finally going to see sid meyer's dinosaurs i think that'll be the new (laughs) portfolio dinosaurs Mm -hmm. Dan keeps trying. You know, that actually makes a little bit of sense, considering their current games. They've got Civilization, which is about human history. They've got XCOM, which is more of like a sci-fi thing. So now they go back in time or do something that's a fantasy sort of thing. Support the ongoing Polycast Patreon campaign. Collective achievements. Personal incentives. Month-to-month commitment. A thank you to lead patron Candace Albinus and all other supporters of the show through this measure. For more information, visit thepolycast.net slash Patreon. Call Call in in today. today. In North America, the number is 301-637-7659. That's 301-637-POLY. 
in Europe, 44121288-7659. That's 44121288-POLY. The only thing worse than being talked about is not being talked about. For more information on Polycast, our sibling shows Modcast, Revcast, and Turncast, or about Polycast in general, log on to the series' official website at thepolycast.net. This is Polycast number 317 that we're closing up. We're here with Dan Q, Makalua, Mega Bears fan, and the Mian team. I am Mr. Shadows. And I guess we've decided that irrigation is kind of a stumbling block. Probably don't need all that many stables or barracks. And personally, you know, we were talking about the map. It's always good to see what we can improve. That and uh, Firax is hiring. Fly today. <laughs> For any given show, we're going to have a best and worst part of it in principle. So even if we're amazing or terrible, we're still going to have a best and worst part. Oh, no, Phil. You mean we're going to have a more bestest and a least bestest. Ugh. Sure. Always Thanks. more bestest. I'm a mature adult, I'll have you know. And sometimes I speak like one. Are you about to define mature and adult for us now? So we understand the context. Patrick <laughs> <laughs> Abawa? <laughs> oh, that's the definition of, of mature really? and adult. Patrick <laughs> Abawa. Okay. And here I was just going for like proper grammar, but okay, oh. sure. Record date, August 25th, 2018. Civilization 4, 5, and Beyond Earth Sound Clips. Copyright Take-Two Interactive. Copyright Civilized Communication at civcom.net.